This week's sponsor for the Slash Filmcast is Audible. With an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more, get a free audiobook with a 30-day trial at www.audible.com slash filmcast. That's www.audible.com slash and then the word filmcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Slash Filmcast, the official podcast of SlashFilm.com. I'm David Chen, and with me are... Devendra Hardwar. And Jeff Kanata. And welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen. Today, what we're going to do for you on the Slash Filmcast, we'll talk about some what we've been watching. we got a Slash Film Court segment. we got some film news discussion. And then we're going to conclude with an in-depth review of Gore Verbinski's newest film, A Cure for Wellness. So much in store for you on the podcast today. Find more episodes of the show at SlashFilmCast.com. You can always email us uh, at SlashFilmCast at gmail.com. That's also where you can send in your Slash Film Court submissions. So let's get straight into it. What we've been watching this week. Devinder Hardware, what have you been watching? Oh, I finally got around to seeing The Edge of Seventeen. And uh, this is a movie starring Haley Steinfeld as a teenage girl. She's kind of going through a lot of issues in her life. And uh, yeah, she's kind of a loner. Doesn't really have many friends. And things get crazy. It's basically a portrait of a of a really, yeah, of a loner in high school and her life experiences. Uh, it doesn't sound that original, you know, when you describe a movie like this. But I really enjoyed it, mostly because the character um, Haley Steinfeld plays is just so endearing. Uh, you really feel for her, even though she's also kind of a jerk. Um, she's one of those uh, antisocial people that kind of makes her own problems sometimes, but. You can't help but feel for her. And I love the cast in this movie, too. Uh, Woody Harrelson is in this, is sort of her reluctant mentor, kind of the teacher, uh, the one person who's sort of her friend, and Kira Sedgwick as her mom, who doesn't quite get her. I love this movie. A lot of people were praising it uh, when it was in theaters, so I'm kind of sad it took me so long to see it. But yeah, it's on iTunes and on demand right now. Definitely worth a watch. So this is the one that was uh, first-time writer-director and mm-hmm. uh, James L. Brooks' producer, right? He kind of nurtured this along. And- Ke- Kelly, yeah, and- yeah. Kelly Freeman Craig is the mm-hmm. director. And this got a lot of attention uh, from critics, at least, because it's a female-directed film. It's a female-led film. Uh, and and written. Are, yeah. And you can really feel it, too. Like, her perspective is interesting and, uh, you know, it's it's unique to – these sorts of movies, for yeah. sure. Yeah, so it's a movie that people thought, hey, we should support a movie like this. Plus, apparently the movie is actually quite good. Uh, very was good. it? Would it have made your top 10 of 2016, Divindra, if you'd seen it in time? I don't know if it would have made my top 10, but definitely honorable mentions. This is just a really sweet movie, um, kind of dealing with a tumultuous place in all of our lives, too. Uh, this girl in particular has a lot of problems she's dealing with, and she doesn't think she has any friends, and her family isn't super supportive either. And, uh, you know, I, I think we can all kind of relate to that. As usual, we're broadcasting the Slash Filmcast live, and in the chat room, Brian Davidson from Film Slubs says, uh, Edge of 17 was one of his favorite films of 2016. Kelly Freeman Craig, the writer-director, has to be considered for a Spider-Man film, given their emphasis on the Hughes-slash-high-school vibe. She did Hughes perfectly. Do you agree, Devendra? 
I think uh, I think she did even better than Hughes. Mm. You know, Hughes is great, but he's also it's kind of stylized in a way, and this felt a little more natural, a little more organic. Um, so yeah, I, I enjoyed it. It's a nice difference in style. That's where we are in 2017. If you if you have a hit, you you get a superhero. <laughs> well, which uh, superhero you, are you getting? If you you've done good job, superhero. Well, unfortunately, I mean, the movie didn't do that well. It only yeah. made it made less than ten million dollars at the box office, which is pretty bad. But uh, I'm hoping that it will find new life on home video. I am planning yeah. on checking it out. Um, and glad to hear that you enjoyed the Edge of Seventeen, Devendra. It's it's quite good. And to what you were saying, Jeff, like I think true equality, you know, in the world of cinema is like yeah, any, any up and comer who has a decently impressive movie gets some sort of superhero thing. The thing is, we're finding only you know a certain type of director is getting that right now. So yeah. yeah. Uh, well, speaking of John Hughes, you know, uh, we got an email recently from Jason from O'Fallon, Missouri. And Jason wrote into slashfilmcast.gmail.com. In episode 401, Jeff Kanata blamed the films of John Hughes for instilling in his young mind the idea <laughs> that he could be friends with a girl he loved and that one day she would realize that he was the one she was meant to be with. While I would not argue that films have fed this fairy tale to young boys many times, I do not believe that John Hughes deserves any blame for this. As far as I can tell, this particular plot never occurred in any film that Mr. Hughes wrote or directed. The only two films that came close were Pretty in Pink and Some Kind of Wonderful. However, Pretty in Pink's Ducky does not win uh, the heart of his best friend from childhood. She winds up with Rich Kid Blaine. Some Kind of Wonderful comes the closest but switches the genders of the individuals. It is the female character that secretly loves her male best friend. She does, unlike Ducky, win over the objection uh, I'm sorry the object of her affection in the end I'm not usually someone who obsesses over details like this but I have to admit I thought that Hughes had used this plot as well it was only after trying to think of an example that I came to the conclusion that one did not exist end quote Jeff Kanata what say you yeah that's an astute observation and I I stand (laughs) corrected I I think um you know erroneously one tends to use John Hughes as a genre right right right, you know and I think uh, we all kind of knew what I was talking about when I said John Hughes, but I think uh, you know uh, it's an imprecise way to to say it, and I appreciate the correction. Yeah. Um, so thanks for writing in, uh, Jason T. And uh, there are, it, you know, it does feel like there have been a lot of movies like that. Jeff, is there one that comes to mind? Oh man, uh, Teen Wolf was the first one that just jumped <laughs> into my head. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, say anything. Um, Oh man, she's all that is kind of like that, but not really. It's a whole different kind. It's a whole different genre. It's almost a genre unto itself. The she's all that plot right. line. Uh, anyway, I think there are a bunch of those kinds of movies, um, but maybe not by John Hughes. Uh, perhaps uh, offshoots of the genre that John Hughes helped to birth. So, right. Uh, anyway. What have we been watching this week? Jeff Kanata, you and I have both been watching a lot of HBO shows, right? So we had a chance to see Big Little Lies. This is the new series uh, that was produced by David E. Kelly and directed by Jean-Marc Vallée. stars a bunch of really awesome, talented actresses, including Reese Witherspoon, Laura Dern, Shaley Woodley. Uh, and it's Nicole one of Kidman. The, uh, Nicole Kidman, that's right. Mm-hmm. It's, their, it's one of their big prestige dramas of the new year. Uh, it's a miniseries. I think it's only like seven or eight episodes. Uh, and the season premiere was this week. So, Jeff Kanata, what did you think of the season premiere overall? I was really impressed with it. I, I'm hooked. Uh, my wife and I watched it together, and uh, we both just completely 
fell in love with it. I Reese Witherspoon in particular just gives a tour de force. Yeah, I mean, she's she is, great. She's, great. she's so good. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, it, it is squarely set in a very wealthy California town, Monterey, California, um, with a very particular kind of person that I think we all sort of know. Right? Is it that that um, overly ambitious super mom that uh, has to you know is it just wants their kid to be the best and perfect and they have a lot of money and idle time to obsess about stuff like that. Uh, and it, it really sets up the chessboard really brilliantly in that first episode, I think, while keeping a lot of things close to the vest. I I hope that the mystery element is not um, held on to too long. That we, I mean, yeah. at this point, it's a murder, right? The first episode is called Somebody Died and uh, we don't know who died. We don't know who is a suspect. We don't know really the circumstances at all of, of what the crime is other than a murder. Um, but it, you know, and I think that's kind of fun. It's like just guessing who even was murdered and, uh, why, uh, is kind of fun, but I hope that, um, we don't go too far before getting more clarity on, on what we're even looking for. Mm-hmm. But right now, you know, the first episode was a wonderful stage setting of all of these characters and their, their, <laughs> their own unique dysfunctional relationships, which is which is it was really deliciously done. I thought it was great. Overall, I agree with you, Jeff. Uh, I enjoyed the episode. I think the biggest weakness for me was all the police procedural stuff, yep. which I thought was not only not great; it's actively terrible. It, it brought you mean the, the entire, interviews and stuff like that. Those interviews were so overwritten and uh, <laughs> over, like overacted in my opinion uh it it just actively brought down my estimation of the entire episode because of how bad it was i mean no one talks like that you know all the all the dialogue with the family stuff you know it's it feels kind of overwritten but i I, i'm like i'm thinking to myself okay maybe i could see people that that interact in this way but no one talks like they do in the interview (laughs) and, and making such vague references to whoever died like uh, and also the police interviewing apparently every single person at the party, except we're not shown the most important people who they interviewed in this episode. <laughs> so uh, yeah. it, it, I found it to be you know very bad on that front. But the performances were great. Reese Witherspoon, the highlight for me. Uh, and I plan to keep watching Big Little Lies. Devendra, your mm-hmm. overall thoughts? Yeah, I really enjoyed it as well. But I agree with you, Dave. Uh, the police stuff, not not good. Yeah. Uh, it felt very manipulative. It felt very, like, it, just, like, cloying in a way. Like, the show was so strong. It, it was yeah, so well written. It, it would have so gotten well- better yeah. if you had taken those segments out. You didn't need it. You yeah, didn't need it didn't at need all. It Maybe all. Yep. hint at it. Uh, maybe like there's a more graceful way to kind of hint at what's happening there. But it was all, uh, the show also reminds me a bit of uh, Bloodline, you know, um, another mm-hmm. story about rich family, something bad happens and kind of how they're dealing with it. I almost feel like I guess this is a genre now too. like just bad things happen with rich people because there are yeah, a whole the, bunch of shows about this. The Affair actually is another great example yeah. and uses yeah. a very similar uh, nonlinear mechanic where yeah. there's yeah. like this interview with a detective but they're not – no one's ever saying who actually got killed. You know, Was, yeah. there, was uh, Damages the, the proto of this? Uh, one of them certainly, yeah. Definitely um, one. Maybe but, that but, and uh, – Even that Damages and, I thought was pretty masterful. Like they, mm-hmm. they didn't ever irritate me as much as the first episode of Big Little Lies did in terms of withholding uh, certain types of information, at least at least in the first season of Damages, I should say. Yeah. Uh, it certainly got worse as, as the seasons <laughs> went on. 
But uh, overall, it sounds like we're all big fans of Big Little Lies. So. I'll push back a little bit on the on the uh, the interview stuff. I, I I can see what you guys are saying, but I liked how it framed our our main characters in this in this community of sort of backbiting. Uh, you know, uh, the, the yeah, people yeah. that you would expect to be in that community. I, I just thought that was I think that the, was a fun way of framing the it. But I, I think the concept is fine. I think the execution was very bad. Like I, I don't have any mm-hmm. any objection to the idea of doing something like that, where you have voiceover from other people explaining who the people on screen are. It just no, no one talks like that. I mean. Uh, the way they talk is so stilted like well the moment I saw Renata I knew things were going south you know it's just like (laughs) no one talks like that it 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 reads like bad like hard boiled detective fiction a little another interesting thing about the show too um, the episodes are written by David E. Kelly I think all of them and he also had credit on Goliath as well. So really, I, I think just fascinating to see him kind of back right. in doing stuff as well. So yeah, I it, is, it is adapted from the novel by yes. Leanne Moriarty. But yeah, mm-hmm. uh, he is uh, definitely putting a stamp on this one. So definitely. And uh, honestly, I, I start with the interview stuff. Like I'm starting to feel some of the issues I had with Goliath as well. But there, the, the cast in this show. Like, I can't think of another show on the air right now that has a cast, at least of this caliber. It is incredible, yeah. 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 Uh, that's Big Little Lies. Jeff Kanata, you've also been watching Crashing, the new Pete Holmes uh, sitcom, right? On HBO. Yes, because I left HBO on. Uh, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, mean, I was very excited to see Crashing, but, but yeah, it was, you know, the Sunday night lineup just was like, uh, last week tonight, and Big Little Lies, and Crashing, and uh, Girls. I didn't watch Girls. But, uh, you know... Um, it's you should strong. watch Girls, Jeff. I know. I watched the first two good seasons show. and then it's fell off. Uh, anyway, that's another bad things happening to, <laughs> to rich people show. <laughs> uh, and it's like curb your enthusiasm. Um, yeah, I, you know, I'm a fan of Pete Holmes, the the uh, the star of, yeah. uh, and the, it's sort of I think a little autobiographical about him. Uh, just I, I've seen him many many times. Uh, I used to live directly across the street from Meltdown Comics in Los Angeles on Sunset Boulevard, uh, which is turned into sort of an underground uh, alt comedy club. I guess you can't use alt anymore to describe things without it <laughs> sounding gross. Um, but it was an alternative, you know, underground comedy scene, you know, the back of this comic book store. And, um, you know, he's he and Kumail Nanjiani are, are good buddies and uh, Kumail and Jonah Ray uh, ran a show called The Meltdown back in the back there. And anyway, I would go to it almost every week when I lived there. So I saw him many, many times, and I always thought he was hilarious. He does this bit about uh, Pierre's, 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 and I just thought it was the funniest thing ever. Um, so I, I've been a fan of, of, of Pete Holmes and very excited to see him teaming with Judd Apatow to do this sh- series. Uh, and I found the first episode to be delightful. I mean, it's it's genuinely funny. Uh, it's you know another of another genre that has appeared only in, in recent years, which is the sort of uh, you know the humor of agony, uh, mm, the you know, sad comedian, right? Yes, um, and I, and that is Kirby <laughs> enthusiasm for sure as well. <laughs> but uh, I just thought this did it, it did it really well. It had people, uh, you know, real people making fun of themselves. I'm such a fan of the the comedy scene you know i i listen to a bunch of comedy podcasts and you know i think there's a i think there's a growing world of people that are sort of into the industry of comedy as well and i consider myself among them and this show 
is in that world and it kind of is giving you a little bit of peek behind a curtain in a it's you know slightly stylized way uh but i i I thought it was great cool uh i actually didn't have a chance to catch it but i'm also a big pete holmes fan and i've heard it's good Mm -hmm. so uh, looking forward to checking out crashing which is on hbo right now uh and jeff you finally started sneaky pete right the new uh, Uh, started and finished wow it's Uh, good my wife wife and i got through it in less than a week it's phenomenal I loved it. Uh, you know, the theme, I guess, uh, of today's episode is is these genres that have emerged, and one of them is the, uh, you know, the um, criminal in a situation where he has to conceal his identity or or her, I suppose. Uh, you know, and and we're on the side of this criminal. You know, we got Breaking Bad, we had Sopranos, The Americans. Uh, there's you know a whole bunch of shows now that do that thing where it's like you know oh, will they be found out? It's weird that their brother is also a cop or an FBI agent or a yeah. you know it's yeah. like DEA agent or whatever it is that is the exact thing that would catch them and they have to tiptoe around. And, but you know I love those shows. I love that that thing. The other thing that I absolutely adore in media. Uh, not so much in politics, but in media, I love con man stories. I, I love uh, I love a good con movie. I love a good con book. I love a good con story. Um, and Sneaky Pete is about a con man who uh, assumes somebody else's identity when he leaves prison to try to swindle them out of some money because he owes money to a big mob boss. Uh, Giovanni Ribisi is the con man. Big mob boss is Brian Cranston. I knew that Brian Cranston produced Sneaky Pete, mm-hmm. and I thought I, I would kind of just assumed he was doing a little cameo. No, no, no. He has a major role in this whole series, uh, and is amazing. He's so good. He's really chewing on all that scenery. Oh my god! There is episode four. Is like a twenty-minute monologue from uh, Brian Cranston. That is like built around this torture scene and I've seen a lot of torture scenes in a lot of things. Uh, <laughs> it's, I, kind this, of a, it's kind of a hobby of Jeff's as it were. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. um, but you know, there's a lot of mob movies that dudes are tortured or whatever. You know, a lot of Scorsese and stuff. I don't know if I've ever been made to feel more uncomfortable based not on graphic violence or – or you know something horrific like that, but purely on the psychological staging of the event, and it has entirely to do with Cranston's monologue and like mm-hmm. how that all comes together. But this show, you know, it starts in that place that I'm talking about of like, okay, he's a con man, he's in a bro- oh, the brother is a cop. How long <laughs> are they? Get- They're a bail bond. The family is bail bonds. It's all about law enforcement. How long is he going to be able to do it? It starts there and you think it's going to be fairly predictable Breaking Bad style and where it goes is much more interesting and much more fun and it culminates in such a wild, fun, con movie uh, climax that I just – I had a blast with this show. I just thought it was great. I'm about halfway through. Go go ahead, Jeff. Sorry, sorry. I just want to say uh, Margot Martindale. uh, Always Acclaimed acclaimed character character actress actress Margot Martindale. (laughs) She is – uh, anything that she's in, I will watch. She's amazing. and a lot of justified people too, because uh, Graham Yost is showrunner of this right. right now. So, that, what's interesting is that the show, like I think the pilot, isn't 
it's a good pilot. Like it gets you on board. There are a lot of holes in it. Like the basic setup of this entire situation, I think is kind of, it's just weak. Like if they had tried to maintain what they were doing with that pilot, um, I think the show would have fallen apart. So it does seem like uh, it initially started being a David Shore project along with Brian Cranston and uh, David Shore left. And I think like the uh, Grammios just kind of repositioned how the show would be headed. Um, and yeah, it's a lot more like justified now there's, it's just much more multi-layered um, definitely worth watching. I think you, you would love it, Dave. Like this is right up your alley. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, that is uh, sneaky Pete. It's on Amazon and yeah, Devendra, you know, I'm, I'm going, I'm going back, cap, catching up on some things, you know, I just finished six feet under, feeling some don't, good. Don't even, don't even do this. <laughs> don't even do this. Feeling some good mo- momentum there. Sneaky yeah, Pete's Catching up on some older shows. Yeah, yeah. Leftovers is going to be on the list soon. You know, there's a lot of stuff I want to get through. So sure. Uh, maybe we Firefly. Just to, we just have to hope that uh, there isn't some weird perverted uh documentary that's released in the interim and then <laughs> they will be i should point out speaking of weird perverted documentaries that david farrier's tickled is gonna be on hbo i think on february 27th so that's in a week from now mm-hmm. uh and not only that but apparently the uh movie has 20 minutes of extra footage which uh i am looking forward to checking out and we'll discuss on the podcast next week so Thanks for reminding me, Jeff Kanata. I know that was Absolutely. your intention there. Yes, indeed. Uh, anyway, speaking of things that uh, we recommend, we, we just got to the end of what we've been watching. But uh, one other thing we do want to recommend is our sponsor this week, and that's Audible, which is the leading provider of premium digital spoken audio information and entertainment on the internet. We have some book recommendations for you guys, some audio book recommendations for you today. Yeah, as, um, as much as we talk about movies and TV shows – I think all three of us are united in our love of books, and I don't think we talk about that enough. You know, people talk about making time to power through TV shows and watch movies, and yeah, yeah, that's all well and good. It's hard to make time to read, but that's what's so great about audiobooks. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it is a different experience than reading a book on the page, but still very worthwhile. And my favorite, Jeff, are books that are read by the people who wrote them so you can kind of feel that authenticity or uh, books where they hire like really professional talented actors to perform uh, the book you know yeah, we're going like, to give you one of each of those like extremely here. talented I, like off the charts underappreciated you're underappreciated monstrously talented is the word yeah. I was going to use actually um, yeah. monstrously like you're you're scared of it you know what I mean that's how, <laughs> yeah. that's how talented they are is that what the problem is um, so so firstly for those who don't know what audible is yeah you you uh, can subscribe to audible and uh, get access to all these amazing audiobooks as well as shows uh, they have all, all kinds of audio entertainment on there. I personally am an Audible subscriber. I use uh, the iOS app to listen to. I have like dozens of audiobooks on there that I've collected over the last couple of years. Uh, and the one that I am really enjoying recently is Jesse Klein's You'll Grow Out of It. Um, this is a, a book by uh, one of the writers of Inside Amy Schumer. It's very funny. It's like a coming of age book. It's kind of like, um, you know. Uh, Edge of Seventeen, uh, except in audiobook form, and it's not really Edge of Seventeen. It's more like Edge of Forty, if that makes sense. <laughs> uh, sure. It kind of deals with uh, you know this 
uh, person who's very funny and uh, intimate in her writing and, and how she uh, has adjusted to different eras of womanhood in her life. Uh, it's read uh, very well, and I quite enjoy it. I recommend it. It's called You'll Grow mm-hmm. Out of It. And books such as that are available for free if you sign up for a 30-day trial by going to audible.com slash filmcast. That's audible.com slash and then the word filmcast, F-I-L-M-C-A-S-T. So get a free audiobook with a 30-day trial today by signing up at audible.com slash filmcast. Uh, Jeff Kanata, you also yeah. have a book to recommend, right? You actually participated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah screw David's suggestion. Ignore that. Uh, what I want you to do is go and uh, get on Audible. And go to audible.com your... slash filmcast. Right, yep. and you get a free book. So this costs you nothing. You get a free book. That free book should be Traveling in Space by Stephen Paul Leva, <laughs> as read by frighteningly good actor, me. So uh, I, I, uh, I narrated an audio book. It's called Traveling in Space. It's a first contact novel. It's funny. It's awesome it's a science fiction uh romp uh it's a first contact you know it's the first time humans meet aliens but it's told from the point of view of the aliens i happen to be looking in our chat right now daniel mclean says traveling in space is good (laughs) so there you go (laughs) well in that case is good uh no seriously i'm reading the reviews on the page right now uh the question here have you listened to any of jeff canada's other performances before how does this one compare hj plagamars says jeff does a super job of conveying the characters in the book and there are a lot of them so yeah i did nice. like 40 characters uh, all with different wow. voices i'm really proud of it uh it, i really would love slash filmcast listeners to check it out jeff canada's yeah, performance it. is astounding <laughs> the unique characterizations allow for wonderful relationships developed between the various characters. From laugh out loud hilarious to deeply contemplative, it was a joy to listen to. That's from AJ Guy at Audible.com. Yeah. So yeah. Nice. Not not to take away from your suggestions, guys, but uh, there is one audiobook that I am really fascinated by. It is the uh, the audiobook for uh, Lincoln and the Bardo, the George <sighs> Saunders novel, which sounds incredible. 166 yeah. narrators in this thing, <laughs> including. Nick Offerman, David Sedaris, Kerry Brownstein, and George Saunders himself. So there you go. Those I, are three I, great options so you can get right now uh, for free by going to audible.com slash filmcast. That's audible.com slash filmcast. And uh, sign up to get a free 30-day trial, uh, which comes with a book as well of your choice. So the books are uh, You'll Grow Out of It by Jesse Klein, Traveling in Space by Stephen Paleva, narrated by Jeff Kanata, and Lincoln in the Bardo, a novel written by George Saunders. So thanks so much for Audible for sponsoring us this week. If you guys want some great audio entertainment, and we have a feeling you do because you're listening to the Slash Filmcast, then check out audible.com slash filmcast for a free 30-day trial. Uh, thanks to Audible for sponsoring us. Thanks also to the following people for donating to the Slash Filmcast. Robin E. Lisa H., uh, which I accidentally pronounced Lisa T last week. Um, but thank you so much for your very generous contributions. Thanks also to Stephen W., Eric B., Michael S., Pinlord LLC, who has some pretty cool pins, uh, and Mike V. for your subscriptions at the rate of $2 per month. If you want to subscribe to the Slash Filmcast at $2 per month or throw some money our way and support us, go to SlashFilm.com, use the Slash Filmcast prom- uh, tab, 
uh, click on that, and then go to the sidebar for the PayPal links to uh, throw us some cash. All the money you throw to us does help us to uh, defray the cost of seeing movies and putting on this show. So thanks so much for all those who donate. Thanks to Audible for sponsoring. Uh, we have gotten a few requests for a Patreon page. Uh, that is something because some people they're very generous people. They donate to Patreons like Jeff Kanata's We Have Concerns or David Chen and Joanna Robinson's Gen Pop, and they want all their giving to be centralized in one location. And Patreon is a great uh, place for that. Uh, just know that we are exploring that, and we hope to have a solution for that sometime this year. Um, so look forward to that as well. But in the meantime, thanks to those who go to SlashFilm.com, use ambitious, the PayPal links to donate to us. Ambitious timeline. Oh, yes. <laughs> in yeah. February, he says, I hope sometime this year. Jeff, Jeff I, I am a strong believer in uh, under-promising and over-delivering. So uh, this year, it feels like a very, very doable timeline. Um, anyway, so uh, that's our sponsors and supporters for this week. Let's move on to our next segment, the Slash Film Court. Slash Film It's been a few weeks since we've done a segment of the Slash Film Court, but I thought we were long overdue uh, because basically what happens is if we don't do a Slash Film Court, guys, we get no more Slash Film Court emails, and that's very sad. Uh, (laughs) So the Slash Film Court is a segment where we adjudicate your movie-related dilemmas. You can always send them to us at slashfilmcast at gmail.com. This email comes in from Derek M. Derek, uh, please let us know where you're coming in from when you write into slashfilmcast.gmail.com. But Derek writes in, Big fan of the podcast and the Slash Film Court last weekend. I had an experience that would be enjoyable to hear the three of you discuss. I took my brother to see La La Land. I've heard your thoughts and reviews on this film, but hear me out. As soon as the film swells to the giant The End title card, I turn to my brother and see he is deeply affected by this movie, kind of just soaking it in. As an inspiring musician, I knew it would hit home. For me, the credits are usually a time of reflection, but once the names start scrolling, the people behind us took no time to blabber about the movie, discuss their plans for the weekend, and share some gossip. I mean, I couldn't hear the credits music over these two guys. He wore the same shoes through the whole movie. It won seven Golden Globes, seven fucking insane Golden Globes. One guy even answered his phone and yelled over the movie. My question to you three is, do you consider the credits still a part of the movie-going experience, or is it an appropriate time to share thoughts on the film? Mm. End quote. That email comes from Derek M., this is a tough one for the slash this film court tough. guys. Yeah, yeah. So Given that the... we spend so much time just talking about crap, like almost immediately as we see a movie, right? Yeah, yeah. Sometimes I I, I go with friends uh, and I want to talk with them immediately. And you know, this is a good example. I went to go see Logan, uh, the new X Men film starring Hugh Jackman this week, and uh, I went with uh, my companion and we watched the movie. And then afterwards, we, we stayed to see if there was a stinger after the film. After there the credits. is not. Uh, well, there is not for us, but apparently mm. they are adding on a few minutes to the final cut of the film. So the, one, the movie that people see in theaters for Logan may actually have a stinger. So don't, you know, I, I just don't know. It's very mysterious right now. But in any case, uh, I wanted to talk about the movie during the credits. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, I, I recently had a chance to see Manchester by the Sea with a filmmaker, a local Seattle filmmaker. Uh, and 
this is a, just basically giving you another situation. And the movie was over. It was like two and a half hours long. So I really just wanted to get up out of there and go after the movie. Wait, so you saw it again? No, 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 no. This is a few okay. months ago. Um, okay. But I'm just giving you another example of this scenario mm-hmm. where uh, uh, this local filmmaker who is very much in the filmmaking process and is, you know, is making a film now – uh, she said, hey, I'd like to stay during the credits, so I'm just going to stay here. You can go. I'm, ju- I'm going to stay here, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she likes sitting through the credits because I think she sees it as a sign of respect. You know, that, hey, the credits are part of the movie. It gives literally credit where it's due. Uh, and as a filmmaker, I, the filmmaker, should, uh, should watch what's happening here. So a few other perspectives for you guys. Uh, Jeff Kanata, why don't you take us through what you think about credits after I would like to reframe this slightly because I honestly don't think that the the credits are sacrosanct but what I do think is that the there is no point no point from when you step foot in that theater you are in the lobby you're walking down the hall you get to your multiplex individual theater You walk through that door. Once you have set foot inside that theater, at no point should you be talking at full voice. Mm. Mm. That is my sincere belief. Agreed. I don't care. I don't care if the if there's nothing on the screen. If it's just trivia on the screen or slides of the the local real estate agent, uh, or (laughs) we're into the pre-show entertainment, or it, it doesn't trailers. It doesn't matter. At no point should any person in that theater speak at full voice. And I see it happen all the time. And that includes <laughs> after the movie when the credits are happening. It happens all the time. Some guy just happened to me the other day. Well, actually, at my screening of Logan, I was sitting next to two guys, and it was before the movie started. There wasn't anything on the screen. We're sitting in a room, and he's like, yeah, so uh, I don't know. I'm, uh, you know, I'm thinking of going home and uh, seeing my sister. I don't want to hear your conversation, idiot. <laughs> <laughs> I have no desire to hear your conversation. Everybody in the room can hear your conversation. I don't understand the lack of self-conscience. Yeah, yeah. It's like, why do you want people to all hear your, your – I've heard some people – say some horrible things by the way i heard two girls talking once behind me about like the weird sex acts that they're doing with their boyfriends and (laughs) for a while i was like are they saying this so that i will hear it because (laughs) this is weird uh like what what sex acts just out of curiosity jeff do you really want to know yeah this turns this into a really not not for families i'm curious yeah i feel like we're we're losing the point of this no 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 no. just just you're just gonna finish the sentence and then no you don't want it you don't want to know say it it's say it being uh let's just say um what's a way i can say it they've really being uh uh tapped about the face with a certain part of the body uh-huh all right. Whatever could okay. that be? Okay. okay. Uh, so um, <laughs> somehow I lost the thread here. My, but but my, my righteous indignation stands. I will say that that also includes the uh, credits. I am totally fine with you starting a conversation about the movie with your friend as the credits roll. I think the movie has completed. We're all in whatever mood we're in. But you do it 
sotto voce. You do it <laughs> leaning over and going, wow, that was really great. Wasn't that great? Oh, my God. Or oh, that was a piece of garbage. Why did we waste our money on that? It, you're, you're, you don't talk so that other human beings can hear you. During the movie, you don't talk at all. Before the movie and after the, and during the credits, it's okay to talk, but you don't talk at full voice, full stop. Mm-hmm. All right. Jeff Kanata has ruled. I am in agreement with him. So majority opinion is already here. But I, Hardware, I, do you want to register me, a dissent? You guys, I understand that you guys live in your ivory towers <laughs> where only cinephiles may enter the theater. Um, <laughs> but I'm just saying, yeah, I actually do think you do have a point, Jeff. Like a full voice, like being loud, even like you know, as you're reading through previews and stuff. There's never a reason you really need to do that. But the thing is, you can't. I, it's hard to tell somebody that they, you know, should shut up during trailers, you know, or should oh, be I quiet. Shut up, but they should know already. Well, no, no, you you won't tell them, but you will you will seethe inside. So I, I'm just trying to like allay that, you know, that rage because we don't want the full Jeff Kanata rage. Um, but at the same time, like you know, it's we can't control how people act because everyone approaches the theater differently. I am definitely all for no talking during the theater or during the actual show itself. Um, although at the same time, yeah, sometimes there are horror movies. There are things where you react and collectively like, you know, react to the film uh, with, by shouting or something like you may even say something out loud, uh, but to what this slash film court uh, letter is saying, I think, uh, it's kind of tough, you know. I've been to movies where I just kind of want to sit and drink it in. Um, and there are some movies that have great uh, critics' uh, sequences. I, uh, last one I remember was uh, Cloud Atlas, just because they play the whole sextet. And that's just a movie where you kind of want to drink in everything that's happening. And yeah, there are times where people start talking, but I like I, there is no moral righteousness for me to say, guys, can you be quiet while the words are moving across the screen? Like it's <laughs> if it's really if it's really that bad, you know, I, I just moved to another part of the theater. And I've done that before. Like I've just moved to the front row and just sat and thought about a movie. You have the power to do that. I understand that. Yeah, people can be loud and jerks. But, you know, take your your own control. What you, you can't control how people act, but you can control, you know. How do you approach the situation? So it sounds like Devendra is largely in agreement with us, Jeff. Uh, but he's, he's just not as intense about it as you are. And I also to protect I, us. Yeah, I'm trying to protect you guys. But also to this uh, to the person who wrote in, I, I would actually say like you, it's hard to tell people. Yeah, you shouldn't be talking like that. Yeah, technically, you're right, but in in practice, it's really hard to actually yeah you know, make that happen. All right. Uh, well, the slash home, uh, slash home court has ruled. No full volume of talking before the movie begins or after the movie begins. And that includes during the credits. And, of course, no talking at all uh, during the movie itself. That is our ruling. Derek, uh, you are completely justified in being upset about people who are being dicks during the credits. But and change seats. Yeah, change seats. Try to yeah, change seats. That's a really good advice. Everyone's uh, leaving the theater. It's, it's your <laughs> people oyster. are fleeing, except for those who want to stay afterwards for something that they think is coming from Marvel. But <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, if you want to write into us and let us adjudicate on your movie-related dilemma, slash filmcast at gmail dot com. Thanks for writing in. Uh, let's move on to film news. Just a few film news items I want to bring up. Firstly, I wanted to uh, not apologize is too strong of a word, but. I felt bad. Last week, we rushed through our film news. Didn't really do a very good job. It's kind of my bad. Uh, and, you know, sometimes film news segments don't turn out as well as I would like and end up kind of crappy. And so last week's was one example. Uh, I brought up Mary Poppins. 
without saying exactly what the news was about Mary Poppins, because the casting and the remake itself, or I should say sequel, had already been announced quite a while ago, the news for Mary Poppins last week was that it was actually going into production, uh, which is you know not a huge piece of news because we'd already known all the pieces. But when it goes when a movie goes into production, it means you know a there's generally a good chance that it will happen. Uh, as opposed to like what Jeff Kanata says, you know, most things in Hollywood don't happen. Uh, sometimes you talk about plans for, let's say, a Ridley Scott Monopoly movie, and maybe it never happens. You just don't know. Uh, and sometimes it, it does happen. And when it goes into production, typically that means it's happening. So that's the significance of that. But also, uh, we hadn't talked about it before, and so I thought it'd be a good opportunity to bring it up and chat about it. Anyway, uh, just wanted to, to point out what exactly the news was last week, because there was some confusion. Uh, another thing I wanted to mention, uh, this is a clarification from a few weeks ago. We talked about, we spent 20 minutes talking about the new title of the <laughs> Star Wars uh, film Episode Eight, The Last Jedi. There was a lot of debate o- about whether or not Jedi was plural because, you know, Jedi is, is singular and plural. And Jeff, I think you speculated that it was plural, right? I did. Yeah. Nailed well, it. Well, in other languages... Uh, the adjective modifying, or, or I should say, I think the it's either the definite article or the adjective, or sometimes both, modifying Jedi actually indicates whether or not that noun is plural or not. And when you take a look at other, uh, you know, titles from, say, Brazil or France or wherever, it seems clear that Last Jedi is plural. Now, the caveat is, I believe, with some of the other... Uh, Star Wars names around the world that there was some inconsistency in singular and plural, but uh, that is previous films. Maybe they are consistent this time around. We don't know, but uh, it feels likely that Jedi is referring to more than one person. So I know there are a lot of people on the edge of their seats about that one, but uh, (laughs) now it has been resolved. I also just think as a language and grammar nerd, it's pretty cool that depending on the translation, you can tell whether something is singular or plural. It's the same reason that uh, the Pat movie didn't work well overseas. Indeed. Indeed. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the, the SNL character Pat movie, Jeff? Yeah. yeah. It was, it was, it was either, this joke for me. Nice. It was uh, either uh, <laughs> Los Pat or Las Pat. You know, it was, it was uh, it revealed whether it was a male or female. All right. And, uh, um, so, John Favreau, <laughs> another bit of film news, John Favreau uh, is uh, going, you know, hot off his Jungle Book remake, is going to be remaking another uh, Disney uh, film, The Lion King. And on Friday night, he revealed news on Twitter of who would play uh, the characters. Uh, It looks like Donald Glover is going to be cast as Simba, and James Earl Jones will actually be returning uh, in the role of Mufasa. So uh, it's not clear, according to this article at SlashFilm.com by Jacob Hall, whether uh, Glover will simply supply Simba's voice or if he'll go above and beyond and strap himself into a motion capture suit. Um, however, we can assume that The Lion King will probably look an awful lot like The Jungle Book, a quote-unquote live-action movie in name that uses stunning photorealistic animation to bring its talking animal characters to life. But no Which human? two songs do you think he's going to retain? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, dude, Lion King had such great songs. 
And uh, yeah. I was really upset with how the Jungle Book treated its musical roots, to be honest. So I hope they do a better job of keeping some of the songs. But I, I don't know, Jeff. I, I honestly don't know how I feel about these remakes as a whole. You know, we talked Beauty and the Beast is coming out soon. There was Cinderella. Uh, I really did not enjoy the Jungle Book very much. Um, and so I'm not really looking forward to Lion King. How about you guys? Are you psyched for a Lion King live action remake? Well, the Jungle Book was great. And I still think you were dead wrong about that, Dave. Of course. Um, like, of course. Yeah. Agree. Yeah. yeah. Um, this will be an interesting one to see just because there are no humans in it, right? So how do you right. – yeah. How do you – are you going to pretend it's like something from planet Earth except all the animals are CG? Which I guess we have the technology to do now because yeah. the animals looked so great in the Jungle Book. They I did also look great wonder, in the Jungle Book, yeah. Yeah, they looked amazing. Long and stretches also, in that movie where there's no humans. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. My other thing too is like uh, James Earl Jones redoing this role in a remake. Has that been done before? Like an actor redoing the same role, the same exact role in a remake of a movie? A live action remake of a film? Yeah. But it's not even live action. It's just different animation. Just different animation. Yeah. We have the technology now to just do that again. The only thing that comes to mind, which is like, this is not even, this is not what you're describing, Devinger, but the one thing that leaves to mind immediately is Paul Bettany playing Jarvis the the machine in Iron Man, like one, two, and three, and then becoming a the Vision character later on. Yeah, yeah, that's close. It's not like a 25 year. Gap, but yeah. yeah. You know, guys, if if they're just if it's just all going to be CG characters, they could just take the soundtrack from <laughs> Lion King and reanimate it. Yeah, there's I nothing mean, stopping them from doing that. Do not make them lazier, Jeff. Okay, I mean this like, is this is yeah. a bottomless well of cash for Disney, is what this it's, is. Yeah, it's kind of insane, but honestly, it's insane that they've that they've done so well. Like Cinderella is pretty good, you know, and they got. Kenneth Branagh to do that, right? And getting yeah. Favreau to do Jungle Book, like they're not—they're not just being lazy about it, which I kind of like. And also, we didn't say much about Donald Glover here. He is great, and I cannot wait to see yeah. his version of Akuna Matata. Yeah, that should be—that uh, should be Ask fun. Yeah. This guy is a, he, this guy is a rising star that's completely unstoppable. Uh, and <laughs> I can hear the jealousy in your voice right now. No, man. there's no there's no jealousy whatsoever. Rising star. I actually, uh, we had a chance to hang out uh, at uh, Comic-Con, like, oh, I think it was Comic-Con, like, five or six years ago or whatever. But this is, like, this is yeah. way before he had exploded in popularity. And so I think back to that time of, like, how, how you know, little time can pass, you know, between a person being relatively unknown and now everyone knows who he is. Yeah, we know? hung out That's with him, too. Dave. Uh, he he was on the Totally Rad show back in the day. The the guys uh-huh. from uh, what was the name of their troupe? Derek uh, Comedy. Derek, Derek Comedy. Yeah. yeah. They all came over to Alex's house and we all hung out and and shot an episode. And, and now he's Lando Calrissian. Yeah, so. it's so, it's so <laughs> crazy to think about. You know. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, but no, there's no jealousy. I think he's super talented, and uh, I think I, I hope this makes you know. Things have some some things have made good use of his talents and some things haven't. Uh, mm-hmm. So like Atlanta, obviously spectacular use of his talents. Uh, the Martian, not as good use of his talents in my opinion. So <laughs> yeah. I hope I hope this uh, really makes good use of his talents. Um, For sure, and I'm glad he's sticking. Like I want him to do more acting roles. I want him to do more stuff like the, like this and kind of maybe bring in his musical talents. I haven't liked as much, you know, what he was doing with Childish Gambino, and that felt like a big distraction. So I want to see him like on screen doing stuff. That being said, I, I have seen him perform as Childish Gambino, and mm-hmm. it is he is also has a massive fan base there as well. He is into it. He's yeah. really into it. Yeah. 
All right. Uh, speaking of remakes of old properties, one other thing I wanted to mention this week is uh, Dante Basco played the role of Rufio in the 1991 Steven Spielberg film Hook. And he wants to make a short film that serves as a prequel to Hook that illustrates more of uh, of Rufio's, you know, the, the story leading up to Hook. Is uh, Hook the first example of Disney trying to do something like they're doing now, of taking an <laughs> animated property and making it live action? And then they were like, well, we won't do this for 20 years. Okay, let's just – no. Was that Disney? I'm not sure if Hook was even Disney. Yeah, that wasn't Disney. Was it, that was uh, ha- DreamWorks. It was Spielberg. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, uh, he developed it with uh, with Walt Disney Productions um, uh. and Paramount Pictures. Uh, but then it looks like it went through some different things and it ended up being distributed by TriStar Pictures. Mm-hmm. Um, Isn't TriStar so, a Disney th- a joint? TriStar uh, was a Disney division. No, it's a uh, Sony Pictures Motion Picture uh, Group. Right. Yeah, Sony so. made that hook game for the Super Nintendo. I owned it. So it was yeah. all, it's all connected. <laughs> yeah, uh, so I th- it looks like it started at Disney but then might have gone elsewhere. In any case, my uh-huh. question for you guys is, you know, Hook is one of those movies that really scares me. Yeah. Uh, because everyone says it's terrible. <laughs> but when I saw it, I really loved that movie. Yeah, have you and not rewatched it? I, since I have never rewatched it since Ooh. I was a kid. I saw it in theaters, right? Yeah. So I always have that pl- like those that memory. And in fact, the one <laughs> the, memory the, your childhood, that is it. That's all that's left. <laughs> and if you watch Hook, it's gone. The one memory I have of Rufio was this part of uh, the movie when I think everyone was chanting Pan, and then yeah. Rufio tried to start up a, a counter chant. He was like, yeah. Rufio, Rufio, <laughs> and he failed completely. And that <laughs> moment in that movie has stuck with me for the last you know two and a half decades. Uh-huh. He's all um, of us in that moment. He's all of us in that moment. But apparently, you know, Rufio's having the last laugh because his Kickstarter was funded. But I guess my question for you guys is, is this a movie, uh, Hook, that you have fondness for? Do you think it's a legitimately good film? Do you think it's underrated? Or do you think people are right that it's kind of uh, some of the weaker Steven Spielberg? I mean, I also grew up with Hook. It was one of my favorite movies as a kid. And it it was strange. Like, once I started reading more, like, actual film criticism and, uh, you know, started talking with people online, a lot of people just love shitting on that movie. I have rewatched it recently. There are a lot of things that don't quite work about it. Um, There's some really bad 90s, like, uh, score in there, even though it was John Williams doing the music. Uh, He didn't do all the The main theme is awesome, guys. The main theme is amazing. But there's some, like, weird, like, poppy stuff in in the opening that's not good. Uh, that ultimately, though, it's still such a heartbreaking movie. You know, it's a movie about literally losing your childhood and the relationship between Peter Pan and Tinkerbell uh, broke my heart as a kid. Like the idea that, you know, this this little companion loved him this whole time and couldn't do anything about it. So, yeah, and losing your son and all that. It's a movie that's still effective to me, despite its flaws. And you could definitely see its flaws. How about you, Jeff Kanata? Are you still a fan of Hook? I, I'm like you, Dave. I have a fondness for it, but I haven't watched it in decades uh i I would like to point out though i think kickstarter is the 21st century equivalent of counter chanting (laughs) (laughs) it's just dream just clap it's just like you make it real yeah (laughs) (laughs) to be fair uh he had the short film is fully funded so Uh yeah Um, that's pretty good like i don't know where this is gonna go i don't know if this is the best strategy to bring it back, like I, I do secretly wonder, like there was so much good stuff 
in this world, the world building of Hook, like what happens if Peter Pan leaves? Like there, there's a power vacuum and what has yeah. to happen there and somebody else has to come in and take in. Um, I always loved Rufio as a character, too, because, you know, seeing him as a kid, like here's a badass brown kid in a big movie, in a giant movie. You know, what, what was I used to seeing then? I was used to seeing Short Round. I was used to seeing, you know, the the hokey companion that just kind of got in the way. And Rufio is a fucking badass. Yeah. You know, so, yeah, I, w- I would actually be interested in seeing an origin thing. Of I course, origin know. stories have been hit or miss. You know, you got stuff yeah. like positive ones like Rogue One and then you have negative ones like Phantom Menace. Uh, and <laughs> so who knows whether whether these are questions that need to be answered. I certainly didn't think going into this week that I needed to see a Rufio origin story. <laughs> but uh, like you said, Devendra, he, he is a character I still remember after all these years, and I guess there is something to that. So Yeah, he's and he has had cultural impact, too. Like, you still... You go to conventions. People still dress up as Rufio. It's... Mm. it's you, you say that chant, you know. Uh, if you start... It, honestly, if you start the Rufio chant at, like, a convention or even something with, like, vaguely geeky people, people will know what you're talking about. They'll just do it. It's the most amazing amazing thing in the world on the other hand if you say something like i see you they'll think they'll think you're just a, a creep yeah are, are your glasses okay Do you need your glasses cleaned they won't grasp the avatar uh relationship yeah. <laughs> anyway all right well that's film news for this week uh you can read it up on all the hottest film happenings at slash film.com uh let's get to our review of a cure for wellness there is a sickness inside us rising like the bile that leaves that bitter taste at the back of our throats. It's there on every one of you seated around the table. Only when we know what ails us can we hope to find the cure. What do you make of that? Clearly he's lost his mind. Our thoughts exactly. I'd like you to go to Switzerland. And bring Mr. Pembroke back to us. What we offer here is a process of purification away from the pressures of the modern world. Your plan to take Mr. Pembroke back with you. Is that a problem? He's a patient, not a prisoner. Are you here for the cure? No. Actually, I was just leaving. No one ever leaves. That was from the trailer of A Cure for Wellness, the newest film by director Gore Verbinski. Uh, I'm going to read the plot summary from IMDb. An ambitious young executive is sent to retrieve his company's CEO from an idyllic but mysterious wellness center at a remote location in the Swiss Alps, but soon suspects that the spa's treatments are not what they seem. Uh, This movie stars people such as Dane DeHaan, Jason Isaacs, and Mia Goth. Uh, and before we get to the movie, guys, there's a few things I want to talk about related to the movie. So this is before mm-hmm. we even get to our review of the movie. Uh, firstly, there was a bit of a controversy this week. The marketing company or the studio with the marketing company uh, that was in charge of marketing this film launched a series of fake news websites. Uh, oh, good. Just what we need. In, in an attempt to capitalize on an ongoing trend online uh, and trying and, and gin up some interest for the film. So they, they, you know, there were fake news publications created like the Salt Lake City Guardian, which is not a real publication. But if you go to that website, it looks like, – well, I mean it's down now for reasons that I'll explain in a bit. But it looked like an actual news site. Um, the Sacramento Dispatch, the Houston Leader – 
the NY Morning Post and the Indianapolis Gazette. Those are the fake news sites. So if you actually got your news from any of those places, it's fake, meaning it is it is not factually correct. And uh, and you know, guys, I'm not opposed to this concept in general uh, of creating yeah. like a fake news. Like, so it would have been a great idea of, before this election. Well, one honestly. of the stories was like psychological thriller screening leaves Salt Lake City men in catatonic state. And there's a photo <laughs> of Dane DeHaan in it. And that's kind of funny, you know, like making up a fake, fake story about how your film created some psychological trauma in someone like that's, you know, it's not my choice of how to advertise a film, but I wouldn't begrudge you for doing that. The problem is that they created other fake news stories that uh, tied into the film but were made to look like actual real (laughs) news stories. So, for instance, um, Trump depression disorder classified as disease by the American Medical Association. Um, That is not a real thing, (laughs) and it was part of one of these sites. Uh, There was one here about Lady Gaga uh, about how Lady Gaga was planning to include a tribute to Muslims during the super, her Super Bowl performance, which generated more than 50,000 uh, engagements on Facebook. Uh, and all these stories kind of had a uh, linkage to Cure for Wellness in them. Uh, but most people didn't read that, that far. They just read the headline and shared it on Facebook. Like, look, hey, this fake news site created by Cure for Wellness marketers is uh, parroting my worldview. I need to share this with people. Uh, and so that was very bad. I think uh, this is a bad decision by them. And in fact, they apologized for it. Uh, and the New York Times is a story about how they apologized for it. Um, but I, I think none of... Is, is it fair to say none of us support this uh, this marketing campaign? Yeah, it's pretty dumb. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's yes. pretty bad. Uh, like I said, not opposed to it in concept, but just, again, the execution here is... They created stories that could be mistaken as real, and that's a bummer. Yeah. Now, all that being said, none of the controversy or the marketing appears to have helped the film in its opening weekend. Guys, uh, let's take a stroll down the top ten movies of the weekend, February 17th through 19th. Uh, Number one, uh, I'm going to put it out there and say it's Lego Batman movie. Number Uh two, Fifty Shades Darker. Okay. Those movies made $33 million and $20 million respectively, this past weekend. Okay. And a great double feature. Great double feature. Exactly. <laughs> Take your kids to it. Number three is The Great Wall at $18 million, which, by the way, is a pretty big disappointment. I kind of want to see that, too, after hearing about it. But yeah. Uh, yeah, I think it's probably a disaster. But I think they were hoping it would open a little bit bigger because they did spend a lot of money on it. But it's number mm-hmm. three. It got beaten in the second weekend of Lego Batman and Fifty Shades Darker. So not a auspicious And opening. our box office doesn't matter as much for The Great Wall. Honestly. That's true. Uh, John Wick Chapter 2, rounding out number 4 at $16 million. Fist Fight, Ooh. number 5, $12 million. <laughs> then you got Hidden Figures in its, ninth, it. in its ninth week, making $7 million. Uh, that's Hidden Figures in sixth place. Split in week 5, t- taking in $7 million domestic. A Dog's Purpose uh, in week 4, making $5.6 <laughs> million and ranked yeah, number 8. In dog weeks, that's still week one. That's true. Uh, and then number nine, La La Land in week 11, making $4.5 million. Number 10, A Cure for Wellness, $4.3 million. Ouch. That is brutal, guys. Brutal. Um, the movie did not look cheap 
either. Uh, yeah. I, I thought it was closer to like eighty million dollars, but apparently it would cost around forty. Which actually, in my opinion, it means the movie looks fantastic for a mm-hmm. uh, forty million dollar film. I guess but, where they shot too was really maybe remote. So maybe yeah, maybe they shot it on location or something like yeah. that. But um, the domestic total is what five million. So far? Yeah, after after gross. you know the, after today, literally Monday, February twentieth, mm-hmm. uh, they probably spent five million dollars on the the cure for wellness Super Bowl ad. <laughs> so they would have been better off just you know taking that money, buying a bunch of tickets for people, and you know giving them a free entry to see cure for mm-hmm. wellness. It's so, a tough movie to market, honestly. Yeah, I, I thought they did as good of a job as they could have, but apparently yeah. Dane DeHaan's star is not large enough to market a film, and that's a huge shame. Uh, but yeah, this is a movie directed by an auteur. It's based on an original property. It has an actor that a lot of people really respect. It's a movie that I think we should be supporting in theaters right now. Mm-hmm. And it bombed hard. Jeff Kanata, in your opinion, did A Cure for Wellness deserve to bomb hard? Or is it uh, an unappreciated gem? Uh, I don't think it's as binary as that. I think uh, it's it's somewhere in the middle there. It is certainly not, in my opinion, a gem, although I liked quite a lot of it. Um, As you said, it it does look spectacular. I mean, it's beautifully shot, and it does look expensive. I mean, that $40 is on the screen. And as somebody who went into this not really knowing anything about it, I, I was completely intrigued for so much of this movie, it really establishes a delicious premise and a, a really fun mystery and it, it strings you along and there's, uh, you know, it's very uh, Twin Peaksian almost in, in how uh, the, the, the bizarre things are you're trying to add up what's going on and you're trying to unravel the mystery. And for about 90% of this movie, man, I was hooked. I was in it. I was really uh, – on the line thinking and I felt the, like the movie was really smart and it was leading me down this this web of lies and intrigue and I was I was really excited where we end up. And without getting into spoilers, that end was a complete letdown, like a <laughs> massive, massive letdown. So much so that I ended up really not liking the movie very much. And it's just a shame because for 90% of it, I was like, this is amazing. It just – completely collapses in the most banal, uninteresting way it could at the end, in my opinion. Um, it becomes – anyway, we uh, won't tell you what it becomes. I'll, we'll do that in spoilers. But uh, you know, if you had asked me what movie would, would end up making more money you know, months ago, this or Split, I, I would have picked this. I would have thought this would outperform Split. But my goodness, talk about a, a tale of two cities, right? It's um, – it's it, it, a movie that I think completely uh, is betrayed by its ending and it, because the ending is just as uninteresting as, as could be, in my opinion. We should also point out, by the way, that this movie received a C-plus cinema score, which is very, very bad. Uh, cinema score is uh, a, a poll measuring movie appeal among theater audiences. So uh, Cure for Wellness received C-plus. To give you a comparison, Fist Fight got a B. Uh, the Great Wall got a B, Assassin's Creed got a B plus, and Collateral Beauty got an A minus. If Assassin's Creed got a B plus, <laughs> the whole thing is a Travis Sham mockery. <laughs> uh, well, you didn't you didn't see Collateral Beauty, Jeff? So I think that would I be certainly did not. Uh, a Dog's Purpose, by the way, got an A. 
Uh, and you're out of order. <laughs> so think- audiences did not like this movie for whatever reason. Divin your heart or our audience is correct. I, I can understand why audiences didn't like this movie. It's a, Me it's too. a weird, Me too. it's a weird thing. It feels like it's made for a particular kind of cinephile who likes uh, elaborate mysteries like this and visually rich films. Uh, I'm a big fan of Gore Verbinski and his style. And even when he doesn't quite, you know, make it work like Lone Ranger, that's still a really fun movie and interesting movie just to, just to watch and see what he does with it. Um, this movie, like I enjoyed it uh, in many ways. It feels like a spiritual successor to the ring uh, thematically and visually. There's a lot of callbacks to it in some ways. Um, but I, I kind of feel like you, Jeff, you know, I was so with it for quite a bit and then they didn't quite stick the ending. And I also think it's just, it's a little too long as well. Like it's, it's, it's like two hours and 20 minutes. Yeah. It's, pretty, yeah, it, it's kind of a slog. It's um, a bit much like they, they repeat certain plot points. I feel like there are certain sequences we could have just removed entirely, but there are some bits in this movie that have like definitely seared themselves into my brain you yeah, know like yeah. there's we'll talk about some of this stuff in spoilers but there's one stuff there's one thing in a water tank that is like my nightmare you know yes yeah. <laughs> there's some stuff that he just gets so good i just wish the script was a little stronger you know you uh, we, we've talked about this in the past Avenger. you keep bringing up the ring i think that is a um definite uh you know inspiration you know obviously he made that movie as well but you can see precursors to this movie in that movie but mm-hmm. he, Gore Verbinski was also was also supposed to make the Bioshock movie and uh this reminds me a lot of what that might have been both oh, yeah, the, yeah, kind yeah. Of the uh, you know the this kind of like 40s and 50s style to the film mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the production design there's also this kind of central uh antagonist who wants to create this uh masterpiece yeah. society or the utopia community. that's actually yeah. a dystopia utopia yeah. that's actually a dystopia uh and also just water everywhere you know it's just like this water plays into the plot in a big way uh and so i feel like a lot of bioshock similarities as well uh mm-hmm. bioshock of course a, a popular video game that was going to be made into a movie before that project stalled so uh, in terms of my thoughts on the movie guys i thought that uh it is worth watching you know it it, it is Probably one of the most beautiful films I'll see in 2016 uh, or 2017, I should say. The the visuals are amazing. Uh, Dane DeHaan is solid as the uh, the protagonist, and mm-hmm. uh, there are, like you said, Devendra, scenes that are very uh, memorable in terms of how traumatizing they are. There's some some decent body horror here. Uh, I think my biggest complaint about the film is. Uh, as I've already referenced, it's very slow, and the way it doles out exposition is very weird. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've, I've, you know, I've said this before uh, as something that Stephen Tobolowsky told me. You know, the, he, the audience is often ahead of the storyteller, or the often, the audience goes very, very fast, right? And if you say to you know, if you say to the audience, like, if you're reading the audience a story, you know. The child sat down in the cafeteria, right? The audience already has conjured up this image of what the cafeteria looks like, what the food smells like, how many people are in the cafeteria, mm-hmm. you know, what the food looks like, what what it, what what, what meals are on the menu that day, you know, what kind of kids are, what the what the demographics of the kids are, all this stuff. Uh, the audience has already put that all together, and in this movie, 
you know, there's all this vagueness around the water, and and uh, in, in one of the opening scenes, Dane DeHaan's character t- like takes a drink of water, and the camera lingers on that drink of water, and, and you really you know, hear the gulps. Yeah, yeah. you can. And the audience in my theater knew that there was something weird <laughs> with the water. Everyone knew at that moment. But also, but you, look, look, look at the posters of this movie. Like, <laughs> even the posters tell you, like, oh, yeah, mm, some, something's up there. But anyway, suffice to say, you don't actually find out until, like, another hour and a half into the movie. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it draws the mystery out so long yeah. uh, to the point where you kind of start to lose interest. I, mm-hmm. I felt like the way the movie doled out information was not at a... Uh, desirable clip, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, but but other than that, this movie has a lot of things that I love. You know, it's very moody. It's very atmospheric. It has amazing visuals, great performances. You know, it's like it, it has all the things I want. It's just not a conventional horror film, and I think that's why uh, people had trouble uh, getting attached to it. You know, here's another analogy I thought of: is uh, y- there's this whole genre of games now. Uh, and Jeff Kanata, you'll probably appreciate this. Like, called walking simulators, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. and that is that is a, a pejorative term, from my understanding, right? The the idea that like there's games no, like Gone Home yeah, and Fire, Firewatch. Right. Oh, go ahead, Jeff. I was going to say it's not entirely pejorative, but go ahead. Sure. Uh, there's games like Gone Home and Fire and Firewatch that where you you are in a first person perspective and you're kind of exploring this area mm-hmm. uh, or this house or this location, but you're not. There's no real action. You're not going around shooting people you're not going around you know doing puzzles you're just walking around and figuring things out um this movie felt like a movie version of a walking simulator (laughs) meaning there there didn't really feel like any plot momentum it's just dane dehan is stuck in this hospital he's walking around for some reason incredibly freely finding out things left and right and there seems no real rhyme or reason to the the speed, the rate at which he's finding these things out, uh, and and so for that reason, I found the movie a little bit frustrating. But other yeah. than that, it's there's still a lot to recommend this movie. So, so much, so much. Like I would say, I'm seeing people talk about it on the chat room. If you're even like, if you want to see this movie, if there's some interest in it. You you want to see it in the theater. Like, that's the way to see how all these images are composed. Because as soon as you bring it home, you're not going to pay attention to it as much. Your phone's going to come out. Your tablet's going to come out. It's it's not the same. It, it is a gorgeous movie to see in a theater. It's just, mm-hmm. it's, it looks spectacular. I mean, there's so many shots in the trailer you can see yeah. that are amazing. Where, uh, he just puts his camera in the most interesting places. And I've always loved that inventiveness from Gore Verbinski. He, yeah, he, he achieves camera shots that other people don't even attempt. So, for instance, mm-hmm. in the opening scene, a character dies, and uh, there's a shot on the ground. that like, It feels like a dolly shot that goes from like right to left. And this character, when he dies, he pushes over a tub of water. And as the camera you know, uh, goes, like dollies over or pans over or whatever, you see the water still like sloshing in the container. And I just thought to myself... It was either a someone's job to move that container for every take <laughs> so that the water sloshed back and forth, or it was CG water that they animated in there. Uh, but either way, it's it's an amazing shot, and there's so much detail to his shots uh, in examples like that. It's just uh, mm-hmm. it's a wonder to behold. Um, so definitely worth seeing in the theater. I really want to agree with you, David, on the on the the point about how information is conveyed because. 
every time the main character learns something in this movie about the mystery, it, it has nothing to do with his own ingenuity or resourcefulness in yep. finding out that information. Someone just decides to tell him now. Yeah. Yeah. And that is the worst way in a movie for that to happen. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Uh, it's, that is the biggest weakness of the movie is like how the exposition is handled. Oh, yeah. that's not um, the biggest weakness in my opinion, yeah, but there's some, yeah. and, all right. And there are twists that honestly don't need to be twists. Cause I think as soon as you see certain characters like, Oh, I, I know exactly how this fits together. You know, <laughs> yeah. why, why even beat around the bush? At least be as smart as your audience. You know? Yeah. I, I think the movie underestimates the intelligence of the audience for sure. Let's get to spoilers for a cure for wellness starting right now. Now you're looking for the secret. You're trying to see this coming. No. But you won't find it because, of course... You're not going to see this coming. You're not really looking. I have been puzzling over how it works. You don't really want to work it out. Who's in the box? I have been dying to tell you. I want to tell you my secret now. You want to be fooled. All right. Well, Jeff Kanata, you said that wasn't the biggest weakness for you. What was the biggest weakness? The, the movie turns into the most banal slasher tropes at the end it's just right. it just com- it's just boring it's just it's just not as interesting as a setup as, as this movie has to get to a monster hack hack and slash ending it's just dumb mm-hmm. it's just dumb i, I was agree. really uh, you know i don't i don't know that i'm quite as uh bent out of shape about that ending and it being very conventional as you are but i was very disappointed that like I think, on a on a structural level, I I don't like the fact that when you killed uh, the Jason Isaac character, like he he doesn't look like himself. You know, I, I know it's a big part mm-hmm. of the plot that his face is is not real, but it was it was disappointing. Like he becomes this kind of mummy esque creature at the end, mm-hmm. uh, and not really the same villain. You know what I'm saying? Does, does it make sense? Like you. If he's the villain, we should get the satisfaction of seeing him, or at least some, some res, you know, resembling version of him, be killed. And that <laughs> isn't the case at the end. And it but what's felt- he even doing? Like he's just biding time until his daughter has her period, so that you he gotta, can have sex. Gotta keep the bloodline pure, man. Yeah, come on. No, I get that's, that, that's but what, entire goal. Why, why yeah. have a wellness center? Why, like, why have people that can visit you and potentially screw up your plan? If you're literally just waiting around for this chick to come of age, you know, just it yeah. doesn't make any. None of what he does makes any. It's well, just, I, 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 I think, think you're, so you're referring to the you're referring to like how the mechanics of the wellness center actually work, which, to be honest, were not super clear to me. Uh, but here's what I can tell: is that. There is this aquifer that extends the life of people who are in it, I believe. Uh, like, for instance, the, the girl, Mia Goff's character, was thrown into the aquifer after, ripped, after she was, like, ripped out of her mom's belly, right? And right. presumably that's how she survived. And also presumably that's and why it she— And it's the eels. Well, yeah, yeah. There's, yeah, there's they extract are... the, the pure shit and they get, give it to themselves to extend their lives. I get that. They, right. they're, they're harvesting human. They're harvesting human yeah, whatever and it. putting them in those tanks and then shoving eels down their throat and then distilling the essence somehow into this life-giving substance that's in the blue vials, right? I get it. It's dumb. It's... <laughs> Why is it dumb, Jeff? Why... The, the idea of, hey, 
um, making people actually come to get that treatment versus like f- trying to force it on them, I thought was kind of interesting. That, that was definitely uh, yeah, an interesting way of like reframing this sort of thing. Like people are willingly giving and sacrificing themselves. Uh, this this movie makes a lot of social commentary at times too, which I don't know. It's not really new or original, but it does kind of follow up some of what we saw from The Ring. Uh, to what you were saying though, Jeff, like I, it's a little dumb. The whole monster thing um, it, it reminds me a bit silly, of. Yeah. Yeah, it reminds me a bit of the end of Sunshine, where a really intelligent movie just kind of becomes a monster thing. But at least this one, like Sunshine, was a really extended chase sequence, and this is pretty—it's pretty short. You know, it's not the best way to wrap things up. But uh, you know, at the same time, I can see how it fits into like the pure gothic monstrosity of this movie, and like giving us an, an actual monster can make sense at a certain point. Uh, they could have probably done it in a better way, though. I just appreciated the madness of Gore Verbinski. I mean, in just in mm-hmm. terms of yeah. like that whole final wedding sequence, you know, the yeah. dance sequence in the ballroom, it looks amazing. The costumes, just see, firstly, the idea you have all these people dressed in these, basically these massive like uh, snuggies, right. Or slankets uh, dancing around this ballroom and then have a fire set to it. And everyone's wearing a blanket. It, it just, was, <laughs> I just thought that was an amazing juxtaposition. They're all basically flammable at this point. And <laughs> they uh, have a hard time figuring out how to leave a room. Yeah. The, yeah. The visuals of that ending with the costume design, you know, the fire going off and consuming everything. I just thought was spectacular. Uh, and I, I liked the reveal of the Jason Isaac character, and you know he wipes his forehead with a towel, and then you see like an outline of blood. Like that was very creepy and well done. Um, there are a lot of you know really cool sequences in this film that I appreciate. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think I was quite as hard on the ending as you were, Jeff Kanata. Um, I, I mean, I think that's why I'm so hard on the ending is because I liked so much of the buildup and so much of the mystery, and it felt every time he interacts with anyone, we you know the mm-hmm. time that they. They flee and get away from the wellness center and get into the town and the town is weird and everybody's behaving strangely and he's trying to, you know, come to some – get some clues by, you know, stealing yeah. that file. None of that had any impact on anything. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, you know? it was all and pretty like, roundabout, yeah. And yeah. there's the whole thing about this – the woman who sort of befriends him and she's always doing crossword puzzles and putting things together. None of that has anything to do with anything. <laughs> well, she yeah. literally she literally just decides <laughs> to tell him something when she's laying uh-huh. on that table, which she could have told him at any point. It, 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 it's all very lazy, which is a shame because the movie sets it up so so beautifully and 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 it really i really was invested in figuring it out and it just was couldn't have been less interesting to me yeah, I, think I think if the movie just... had been 30 to 40 minutes shorter i yeah. think it would have been a lot better because then the information would have been doled out much quicker it wouldn't have felt the need to treat its audience like idiots but also very slow idiots like doling out this information incredibly languorously Mm-hmm. Tighten so. it up a bit. I have a feeling like it seemed like Verbinski wanted to make, you know, a 60s or 70s era thriller. You know, at times this feels like a Roman Polanski film. Uh, except those movies really managed mood and plot and tension in a way that this really didn't. Um, but, you know, for what works, like, man, that, that water tank sequence, first of all, you know, this guy <laughs> is not to be trusted, right? And you're going to let, you're, you're just going to let him, like, put you in this tank that they're going to seal? From the top, there are easier ways to do, uh, you know, sensory deprivation tanks. Um, but that whole thing, too, like, he just kind of willingly did it. Of course, something would happen with his air supply. The eels were just terrifying. But um, even without the eels, like, that idea of just being stuck in that tank 
you know, uh, is is itself kind of scary. But that dental scene too. That's the one that th- oh, that's man. the one that got me it, it knocking the teeth out, and the, uh, the other one where he forces his mouth open and then puts yep. the tube down his his uh, stomach and feeds the eels into the tube. Ugh. So Ugh. much going on in this movie. Yeah, <laughs> pretty harsh stuff. Uh, pretty harsh stuff. Yeah, I I but then to just end in a a monster that is on fire and. Uh, well, what do you guys make of the actual ending? The actual final shot. Remind us of what it is, Devinder, because he is he is riding away on a bicycle and he's smiling. He avo- like he rejects going back to New York. He rides away on a bicycle with the girl, um, and he's smiling. But the camera really like I think it even like zoom like zooms in a little on his like devilish grin because he went through part of the treatment. So something is up with him now. Um, I don't I don't quite know what to make of it. It seems like they just left it open ended to be a little scary too. Uh, I wonder if it's it's kind of operating in the same sort of dream logic that the rest of the movie does. Um, I just, yeah, I'm trying to think of a good reading of that. I, I wish the yeah. movie had made more of an impact in terms of the kind of social commentary. This idea of hey, mm-hmm. like, right. hey, we are killing ourselves at our at our desk jobs, you know, and yeah. uh, but hey, going all the way in the opposite direction and uh, using eels to heal yourself or whatever. Uh, well, it's a commentary and, and, on over-medicating or self-medicating. You know what I mean? Right, right. Um, but I guess you know that's obviously so bad that I'm not left with any answers about what the movie thinks about modern life. You know, in, in many ways, the people who were in the office and the guy who died of a heart attack was better off uh, because <laughs> he didn't have to endure all the horrors that Dane DeHaan went through. Uh, but yeah, and, I, and as to that ending, Devendra, I just. The fa- the idea that everybody that he was in his office like all got into a car together yeah, and drove there very silly. It's weird. It's weird. It it didn't land on me in any way because by that point I was just like so out of the experience and so uh-huh. disappointed by it that I you know that last smile I was like fuck you. Movie. I, I almost <laughs> felt like the movie was supposed to end with him like sitting on the bench, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, about twenty minutes earlier, yeah, him sitting on the bench and looking out. Defeated. Yeah, exactly. It, yeah, it really felt like that was the ending of the movie, and then they have this whole other act of him defeating the uh, the the Baron or whatever. And that was a bizarre turn, right? Like yeah. we had seen him completely bested, and he supposedly has been, you know, quote unquote, lobotomized. You know, he's he, for all intents and purposes, he's one of them, and then he just isn't all of a sudden. Yeah. Like, there's no explanation mm-hmm. as to why he sort of over uh, overcomes the programming that he's now part of i would speculate that it's the result of studio meddling but they clearly seeded in the whole baron stuff earlier on in the film right it it clearly was meant to come back you know with the face peeling off and him impregnating the daughter like all all that stuff needed to be resolved somehow so it doesn't feel like studio meddling because of the plot but Mm -hmm. at the same time tonally the movie feels like it should end there on that bench with him being completely defeated so agreed agreed, yeah yeah it's very very odd very odd decisions throughout the film yeah yeah, I'm totally. I'm. I guess I'm fine with some of those, but 
I'm still trying to find a good reading of that final shot. And I guess the fact that if you can't really come up with a decent one immediately, that's a sign that the movie didn't quite work and didn't quite land. Um, also, just wanted to say, uh, Jason Isaacs is really cementing himself in the like creepy scientist slash doctor role right now. <laughs> like between this and the OA, he is just like really in on this stuff. Also, didn't he play uh, Lucius Malfoy as well? Yes. Not mistaken. Yeah. So, he did oh man. Uh, yeah. So yeah, definitely creepy uncle or creepy father figure uh for sure he's he's got the mark cornered anyway i think those are all our thoughts on cure for wellness overall it's it sounds like a movie we we liked a lot of but had some had some really significant issues i think it deserved to make a lot more money at the box office uh and i hope you have uh, people listening i hope will check it out when they have a chance to see it because we need more original movies we need people like gore verbinski making movies that's just my opinion though uh, stay tuned to hear what we'll be reviewing next week. In the meantime, Jeff Kanata, where can I find more of your work on the internet this week? Well, it's always easy to follow me on Twitter. I'm at Jeff Kanata. You spell that with two N's and one T. Also, I have a video game podcast called DLC, which you can find at 5x5.tv slash DLC. Uh, we review um, Horizon Zero Dawn this week, which is a, a pretty fun episode. And I do a show called We Have Concerns, which is a comedy science show. It's only 20-minute episodes. They're really fun. Guarantee you learn something and maybe get a laugh out of it. That's at wehaveconcerns.com. How about you, Devendra? Oh, you can find me on Twitter at at Devendra. I write about techandgadget.com. Check out our podcast there. I was also on This Week in Tech this week, so you can check that out on twit.tv. Find all my stuff at davechen.net, a blog that I'm updating basically every day. And uh, also find more episodes of the Slash Filmcast at slashfilmcast.com. Email us at slashfilmcast at gmail.com. Our theme music comes from adamwarrock.com. Our uh, spoiler music comes from filmmaker Kyle Hillinger. And our Slash Film Court music comes from simonmharris.com. Next week we'll be reviewing Get Out, new film directed by uh, Jordan Peele of Key and Peele. Uh, I have heard great things about this movie and I'm really psyched to discuss it with you guys. Uh, that's going to bring us to the end of this week's episode of the Slash Filmcast. We'll see you next week. It's it's really remarkable. I mean, for those in the chat room, I'm just going to let you guys know that this might be the last time you ever hear Dave. This might be the last time you ever hear me because I ate a I ate at a restaurant uh, this afternoon, and when I got home, I started breaking out with hives all over my body. Like the the crazy part is like on my face. That's like that's scary. I've never had hives on my face before, so like my face is all puffy now. Um, anyway, I took some Benadryl. I applied some uh, very strong hydrocortisone cream to myself. But uh, I'm in a lot of discomfort right now. And so if I'm a little <laughs> bit off, then, uh, yeah. you know, that's Perfect why. for a body horror movie. You know? <laughs> it's seriously I'm, – I'm getting a lot of material for future How are your teeth? Dave is the world's first method podcaster. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm the only one that remembers the Beatles.
Hello, I'm Guy Garvey. Richard Curtis and Danny Boyle have joined forces for yesterday. We got them together to talk filmmaking. I always saw Trainspotted just as the Northern Four Weddings. Music. These songs were part of us. And a world without the Beatles. A world without the Beatles would be infinitely worse. The Yesterday Podcast, available from wherever you get your podcasts. Yesterday. When did you write that? I didn't write it. Paul McCartney wrote it. The Beatles. Who?